Hello, this is Millie and you're listening to Back to Life, a podcast about healing and creativity within the world of electronic music. The mission of this podcast is to open up the conversation around mental health and addiction, but also talk about the importance of creativity and how that intersects with the healing journey. I really love talking about all of these things. I'm someone who's in long-term recovery myself and for many years felt very, very ashamed and very different and very alone with all of that stuff. And also I was really creatively blocked. So getting into recovery has been incredibly healing for me. And so the myth that, you know, you have to be suffering and miserable to make art, I just don't hold with that. And that's a big part of what this podcast is about. So today's episode, I'm really, really excited to share with you. I found this absolutely fascinating. So my third guest on Back to Life is Nightwave. Nightwave's real name is Maya. She lives in Glasgow. She's an incredible DJ. I'm a really, really big fan and have been for quite a while. She plays music that I love, Acid, love it. So I've been following her for that for quite a while. But she is also very much on a healing journey. She has been using psychedelic therapy and indigenous Amazonian treatments and medicines, as well as doing a lot of work on herself for quite a few years now. She works with something called Cambo, which we're going to talk about in this episode. She also has worked with mushrooms and ayahuasca and has had a really incredible journey with all of that and now is passing that on to others. It's it's not something I've done myself, but what I am really interested in is the fact that there is not one route to kind of healing or recovery. And I find it really fascinating to hear from other people who've had very different experiences to mine. I think that's why I found this episode so interesting because it's just a completely different route to me. So yeah, It's really interesting all she talks about. We talk about her experience with OCD, with depression and the work that she's doing now and and how that has also kind of fed into her creative practice. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I certainly loved having this conversation. So I started off by asking her how long she'd been DJing and how she got into it. Here we are with Nightwave. So I've been DJing since I was 15, which was a little while ago. So yeah, I've been a professional DJ now for probably like purely living off music, maybe about 12, 13 years or so. So I just got into it because I loved electronic music. I was a, I was a raver, you know, I grew up in Slovenia. The scene was very good at the time. There was not much else to do if you're a bit weird and wanted to get away from things. So the rave culture was extremely welcoming and interesting and colourful. And yeah, this is why I still love being a part of the scene now. How did you start DJing? I actually bought my first decks because in Slovenia I used to be an, an actor. So I was a child actor, which is you know, it's a whole other um, dimension but um, I was in a soap opera for two years wow I did not know that yeah so with the money I made being in this kind of sitcom soap opera thing on national tv I then bought my first turntables and just yeah just obsessively went to clubs and you know just 
hanging around the DJ booth, like looking at the record labels and just, I just got really obsessed with it and I just kept going. And then I moved to London when I was 19, I think, 19, something like that. And then just tried to, like most people, you know, just try and make it happen and experience new things. And I just, I just was very persistent. So it paid off. I did not know you were a child actress and or actor and yeah I sort of feel like I shouldn't really just let that go by without comment what was the what was the soap it was called the gardeners um and it's they actually still show it on tv now like 20 years after I mean it's just crazy they're still showing this um it's, sometimes I go home and I still see it on tv I guess we should make some more stuff um but yeah it was just kind of um, a silly sitcom and I played, played a kind of frivolous young woman in there. <laughs> How was that then as a, as a teenager? Because that's quite a kind of, it would be something that I guess would set you apart from your peers and be, could potentially be quite isolating in a way. Yeah, I think at that point it was already, um, it was easier but when I, I did two movies when I was seven years old and that's kind of when you first go to school and that and I'm an only child so I was a bit weird anyway and then the combination of all these things yeah you could say I wasn't very popular <laughs> um, so but I did kind of up until I moved away up until I moved to to London I did I did a lot of tv stuff and film and then I actually did a, I did a little bit in the UK as well, because I kind of tried to do a little bit of everything here. So, and what brought you to uh, to London and then um, Glasgow? I think London was just always this sort of mecca for electronic music. I mean, at the time, I guess either London or Berlin. And when I lived in Slovenia in the late nineties, there's obviously no internet. So every now and then, we would get maybe. Groove magazine or something like that, or Mix Mag and read about what's going on. And then I moved to Glasgow maybe 10 years ago, just because I feel like my time in London was done. Things were getting more and more expensive. I met so many amazing people from Glasgow. Uh, the music scene here is amazing. So I just thought I'll just, I'll just move here. It's just an amazing place. It's a very, very special place. What is it that you love so much about Glasgow? Apart, you know, the music scene I know is, is amazing up there. Yeah, the music, the the, the the arts, you know, the the, peop, the people here are just um, amazing. You know, there's no, there, 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 there's no bullshit here. People will be, you know, very open and there's not much pretense and just kind of the stuff that I was encountering in London in the music industry. And I just, it's just very refreshing and very welcoming. You know, they kind of welcome me and supported me from day one since I moved here so yeah it's really <laughs> and the countryside in Scotland is beautiful obviously our weather is bad but it's a beautiful place to live as well as you say you've been kind of DJing for a long time professionally and you know I'm a huge fan of yours love your music love your um, love your sets and uh, was following you for that but I then started to see these kind of posts from you about this other work you were doing the kind of healing stuff and Amazonian um, medicines and rituals and wisdom and I was wondering how you kind of felt the kind of calling mm -hmm. to start this sort of healing 
chapter? Well, where, where do I start? So um, I, I, I actually, um, I studied complementary medicine in London when I, when I moved here because it's always been an interest of mine and I wanted to just maybe get a degree to have to have something so I did a degree in that and I trained in quite a a few different therapies I never really did much with it but it's just something that's interested me that was kind of the start maybe kind of early 2000s and then I guess I've, I've, I've always been interested in different types of spirituality and esoterics and ancient history and things like that. I tried all sorts of types of practice to to find myself, I guess. So I started going to Buddhist temples when when I lived in London and then and then already working a bit with plant medicine, but then I guess um the the real turning point came just like for most people when um uh, you know, um things things get tough and I'm trying to find, I'm trying to not swear, but maybe I'll just swear, you know, when shit hits the fan, that's when things things happen. And we look for things to, you know, to, to, to help. And when there's that kind of sink or swim moment and you realize, okay, this is, this is serious, I need to do something about it. So for me, that happened maybe um, around, well, I know exactly what happened. It was kind of 2015 where... Um, music was very very busy for like two years around that time it was constant touring and just dealing with a lot of anxiety and going to gigs where I was really really shy and anxious and then just trying to navigate that and like drinking too much to be able to not feel so anxious on stage and then just I I also have OCD so this is something that I had all my life and I didn't really understand up until a few years ago. So I was going through that, not knowing why my brain is acting like this. So at that time, I then um, decided to really look into plant medicine and really work on my health and make some big changes. There were also a few other things that happened. There was some serious cases of online abuse happening at the time and... um, it was just a weird, weird, weird time. I think that a lot of women DJs were experiencing, you know. Um, and at one point, I guess, I just kind of lost it. And it was very, very difficult. It was very suicidal. I was dealing with depression and just kind of not understanding what was going on. That's when I started working with Ayahuasca. So that was maybe, maybe like six years ago now, something like that, around that time. And yeah, my life changed forever, <laughs> and now I'm, and I'm here in this house, surrounded by the weirdest shit you can ever imagine from the jungle. <laughs> you know, do, doing crazy things. Um, that's how it happens. And again, from 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 me finding this these methods and these studies to work on my healing and on my spirituality, I then started studying and working with teachers, and now I'm here. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it sounds like there was lots and lots of things going on around that time. When you said that you experienced uh, OCD and that you have OCD, I just wondered if you could kind of explain how that presented, because I think it's something that's often quite misunderstood. 
obviously you have that sort of stereotype of, oh, I'm a bit OCD because I like to do the washing up or whatever it is, or, you know, I like my socks to match. That's not it. So I would love to hear a little bit about kind of maybe your experience or or what you've learned about OCD. Likewise, it's the same for me, even though I I studied, you know, and part of my degree was psychology and counselling, and this really wasn't explained even to us then. So up until maybe five years ago, I really thought that OCD would just be to do with germs or different type of phobias or just the stuff, the, the stereotype that we all have. But there's many different types of OCD and often it, often it presents itself as intrusive thoughts. And these can be very um, irrational, very scary things that our brain is firing to us. And they usually attack things that we really love. So it can be about our parents or relationship is a really big one or, you know, health. or Things that we value kind of tends to latch onto that and then feed into maybe this anxiety of, oh, what, what, what if something happened to that? Or what if, you know, I, I don't have kids, but I, it's very common for parents to, to develop this. Usually it's in form of intrusive thoughts and then some kind of compulsion that we are really compelled and urged to do to try and alleviate it. So in terms of, you know, some OCD about locking the doors or turning the light switch off many times things these are kind of common things um but when it's intrusive thoughts it could be irrational behavior destructive behavior just stuff like that and I and I and I realized only a few years ago and I really went um you know when went to get proper professional help just to see if this is what's going on and they say it's this classic OCD what you're experiencing I think a lot of people might be experiencing this and and not being aware of what it is so it's worth kind of looking into if, if if you're experiencing intrusive thoughts but when it happens you, you don't know that that's an intrusive thought you know I just I guess I just always thought I'm a bit crazy you know <laughs> so it's nice to have that validation that there's other people who are also going through this and that there's a way to get out of it you know and I think we live our society with all the technology and social media is is really feeding into this into people's insecurities and traumas and triggers from the past and all this so I think it's 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 really common I work with a lot of clients who are experiencing this and they don't know that's what it is Do you remember when you first started learning about plant medicine? Like, how did that kind of cross your path? I don't feel like it was maybe as as widely known about, you know, 10 years ago. It's obviously becoming much more widely known. So I remember when I was still um, living in Slovenia, I started reading uh, Terence McKenna's books and Carlos Castaneda and learning about shamanism and uh, these ancient traditions and even back then I was really interested in interested in indigenous practices but again just taking that plunge when 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 I really needed it to 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 take it seriously and not take it as some kind of like curiosity or tourism and or something like that so was some there was someone you knew who'd who'd done it mainly it was from reading and studying and just I've been learning about this for so many years just uh, just how how ancient cultures were connected to it you know how the evolution of human humanity is connected 
um, the plants and all this kind of stuff. So I was I was very spiritual and open minded, but at the same time I was still you know going to every afters that existed. <laughs> so it was a little bit of spiritual bypassing, uh, and that was another thing. You know I really realized okay you're you're you have all these trinkets in your house and you're not actually doing the practice. You're not really dedicating yourself to it and being honest with yourself and looking at yourself. So I guess that was the big moment when it opened up so it was ayahuasca that you did first is that right I worked with mushrooms for for years before for in a ceremonial setting I've worked with mushrooms for a long time um just because it's more you know it's more accessible and it's a part of our ancestral heritage as well and then with with other medicines when you don't know where to go or what the safest route is it's kind of good to wait and in terms of like using mushrooms in a therapeutic setting, can you talk to me a little bit more about that? How does that how does that work? Well, there's many ways of, of the the way people work with mushrooms and psilocybin now is in a kind of psychotherapeutic setting, and um, you know this is a kind of stuff that's been the, the research model in the recent years. Um, but Again, with me, it's really important to follow a tradition or a lineage. So I'm very interested in what ancient cultures had to say about it. Is there an existing indigenous lineage with certain medicine? How how can we, what can we learn from them? Or is there any way to experience sitting with them? Because it's very different. There's a whole other dimension of healing that comes when you're working with traditional healers. They've been doing this for you know thousands of years. But yeah, I think it's just take with mushrooms. A ceremonial setting is is really important if you're if you're deeply working on inner journeys or getting to know yourself or working with trauma. Um, but I, you know, I think they they do a lot of good even if you just take them for a, for a good for a good time. With respect. So then, talk to me about your first ayahuasca experience. I guess from the start, I didn't, um, I think this is how it happens. Unless you really, really know where to go and what to do and um, who to work with, then you end up kind of just finding something. Uh, So, you know, my my first, my first circles were not in an indigenous setting and I, I could not afford to fly over there and go to the jungle, you know, like some people do. I kind of don't like to talk about my, my experiences really with the medicines, but let's let's just say they usually give you a good kicking and they make you really look at yourself and they it's they give you tough love but also unconditional love and um, a lot of healing. You no, know, I, I don't. I don't think that necessarily people have to work with medicine con- continually, but. Uh, your intention and integration is the most important thing because there's a lot of people that will go to lots and lots of ceremonies and they've not done any inner work, so it becomes another crutch. Everyone's looking for a magic bullet, aren't they? So everyone's looking for a quick fix. It's definitely 50-50 with any of this work. With you, The medicines will show you the path, but you have to do the work and, and the integration is... I think the most important part because you're given this information and this experience and then you have to do something with it. And so you obviously described that kind of very dark place you were in. Did that 
bring some lightness? Definitely. I think, well, for, for, for most people that maybe get stuck somewhere in life or like in their, you know, kind of 20s or 30s or they don't understand where certain behavior comes from or addiction, um, sometimes people know, but sometimes it's it has its roots so far back, you know, in, in, in our childhood and different traumas, different experiences. And these medicines are very good at going back and, and clearing the path and making you understand in a very safe way. So, you know, not to go into too much my personal situation, but um, a lot of this it has its origin in your childhood, you know. So when, when you work with these medicines, they tend to go back and work on things. And then I realized, you know, it make, made me really understand how why I've been like this for my whole life. It made me understand why I have OCD. There's a reason why I developed that. So once these bits kind of come together, um, it's extremely liberating and empowering because you, you feel like you have control over your life. So to be able to, even for a bit, feel the relief of that is just magical. It really is. It's the only word I can think of is magical and also hard work as well at the same time. Yeah, that sounds like a very intensely kind of profound and freeing experience, I guess, what you're experiencing then, those kind of realizations. Um, and then, you know, having that, I guess, yeah, that that kind of responsibility, I think um, it's so important, isn't it? You know, it has been for me a radical sense of self-responsibility and I do need to kind of look after myself, parent myself, um, be responsible for my healing. I know that you're, uh, you spend a lot of your time now um, working with Cambo. I've looked into it a lot uh, in preparation for our interview. So um, <laughs> I'm find, I found, found it absolutely fascinating. So for anyone who, who's listening who doesn't know, what is, what is Cambo? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Cambo is a sacred um, indigenous ancestral medicine that comes, uh, that is, um, what's the word? It's, it's obtained from the giant monkey tree frog, a.k.a. Cambo. That's the indigenous name for it. And it's a secretion from the skin, so frogs are not harmed in the collection process. Um, these frogs have no predators in the wild, so they have no fear. So when indigenous people work with them, they just sit on their hand or arm, and then they use a wooden stick to collect, sorry, this is my invisible Campbell frog, uh, to collect the secretion, uh, which is then dried on a stick. It becomes a resin, and it can be used um, with a little bit of water to can be rehydrated and applied on the skin. And it creates a strong response and reaction in the body, but it's not toxic. So the body doesn't look at it as a as a threat or, or a poison the way it would other things, for example. Um, and indigenous people use traditionally use Cambo to to go hunting. So they use it before they go hunting to strengthen their body, to sharpen their mind, their eyes, to be less detected by animals apparently they use it as a form of vaccination in in a sense because it really boosts the immune system 
um, yeah, those are, and also stuff, something that's kind of interesting to, to our society is they use it to remove something called panema, which in their language is a word for heavy energy, dark clouds, um, laziness, sadness. So basically it sounds a lot like anxiety, depression, you know, stuff that we're all dealing with it all the time. So they say that working with Kambo releases this panema. Um, so this is their use. And, and in, in, in our science, um, in Western science, it's been studied since the 80s. There's still a lot that we don't know about it, but the stuff we do know is really, really incredible. When you work with Kambo, the spirit of Kambo works through your body, it scans you, it knows what you need, and it releases it. So there's only one, on, one way to, to experience what Canva feels like. So we'll have to do it soon. Yeah, absolutely. I was already, I've already looked, uh, been looking for um, routes up to Glasgow to come and visit you and do it. So tell me more about what a Canva ceremony is like. Um, if, it, you know, what would happen if I, if I came to see you? Cambo. So first of all, we would we would do a very detailed consultation. Cambo is a very safe medicine, but ha- only in correct hands. So there's a lot of training and knowledge involved. And then um, if we were to do a Cambo ceremony, so Cambo is delivered into the body through the lymphatic system. And that's purely because it's just too strong to be ingested or to go into your bloodstream. So in order to deliver into the lymphatic system we make small burns on the skin so it's a very quick touch of the skin and then it takes off the top layer of the skin we would then apply a tiny dot of the medicine um usually we decide how many you know not everyone is the same so it depends on many things how much medicine we will apply but let's say we start with three so i'll make three marks on the skin and then you would have to drink about a liter and a half to two liters of water uh, on an empty stomach so this is actually the hardest part with Campbell because it's really unnatural to drink so much water so people usually struggle with this part and that's basically needed so that there's something in your stomach in case Campbell decides to release anything and once your belly is full of all this water, uh, we then apply the medicine and it will start working straight away. It starts feeling, it's very physical. So this is not a psychedelic experience at all. Uh, it's not psychoactive. Um, so first you would feel a lot of warmth, then you will feel very hot because it starts circulating and working on your immune system. Your body starts waking up with the medicine and you would feel your heart rate go up you would feel maybe a little bit of pressure in your head a lot of people say it feels a bit a little bit like taking poppers so obviously I wouldn't know that but but yeah it's kind of like a little bit of a heady feeling and after a little while so this can be quite intense this can be very intense Um, and after a little while usually people start feeling a bit of nausea and then very often something will come out in the bucket which is a release from the gall the gallbladder and the kind of digestive cleanse um but sometimes people don't purge sometimes they don't sometimes it works in other way on the other areas sometimes it can make you very emotional because it releases a lot of clogged up 
energy and emotion. Sometimes people just fall asleep if they're extremely tired. Um, <laughs> that would be me. Which is crazy because we're maybe <laughs> it happens so much because have a I have a cry and then fall asleep. I reckon. <laughs> I mean, it feels great afterwards. You feel amazing, but um, yeah, it's like like a lot of these medicine. It's it you know it's not easy and it can it just requires um, a bit of firmness and um, the rewards are. Are very you know they're they're massive for for most people this is an extremely beneficial medicine I think I've done something quite similar to Cambo in the past so uh when I was in Thailand um I uh, I when I was about 25 I went to like a, a Buddhist traditional rehab in Thailand and they did a kind of vomiting uh, detox ritual and I basically had to sit uh, sit drink this kind of noxious it wasn't just one thing but it was this kind of very it was it tasted like a dirty ash like a like the bottom of a dirty astro or something like that it sounds a lot like mapacho cleanse the the purga they call it which is basically a tobacco a ceremonial tobacco liquid that you drink and it's a purgative so it's possible there was something similar to that they do that a lot in peru this this method but Campbell, the way Campbell works is it purges not from the stomach, but from the gallbladder and the other. So it's kind of the other way around. So, yeah, yeah. we'll just need to do it. It's the best way. So maybe if I'm in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've always got Campbell with me. You just need to bring your own bucket. <laughs> it's funny because I'm in 12-step recovery and because it's so, because uh, obviously I've had you know, issues with mood altering substances, like tend to go like just nothing mood altering in any respect. And even like pain medication, you know, I'm quite wary. Even when I was giving birth, I was very conscious. I didn't want to have painkillers. And I mean, I ended up having some, but um, all, you know, so I'm very, you know, kind of, but I think the more I learn about it, the more I'm, I'm just kind of quite interested to to give it a go the thing with these with these substances is that m- most of them they're not they're not that pleasant so it's not something that you'd be like oh great I want to keep getting no. this more and every time even I when I every every time I have a cup of ayahuasca I'm always a bit like you know what, what's going to happen today and, and, it's, and it tastes horrible and it's just so it's very different but I, I totally hear where you, where you, I, I have a lot of people that inquire that are in 12 step and they say exactly the same thing as you. And what, what about you and your first experience with that? Do you, how did you come across it? Sometimes in certain types of ceremonies they might offer Cambo as well because, because the, the tradition of those people, they work with these medicines. So the people, the indigenous people in Brazil, in Peru and parts of Colombia, they work with both so they kind of go hand in hand. So that's why that's why yeah, just kind of made sense that I that I try combo next after all the other stuff I'm doing. So yeah, it it bring it it really works very quickly. So that's that's why I fell in love with combo because I felt that it it worked extremely quickly and it didn't require that much from me apart from surrender and just the courage to do it. And my health has improved a lot since. My mental health has improved massively. Um, so now I work with a lot of people. I've opened the. Um, I have a therapy studio in Glasgow that I opened maybe a year and a half ago. 
I'm interested to see what you've seen happening with with people that you've worked with. There's different types of clients I work with. So most people, um, they they tend to assume that this is a detox because obviously there's there's a purging element. So they think they will come and just release everything and then go home and then that's it. And I have to always explain that again, it's the 50-50 work and what it does and how it works. So most people come for mental health issues uh, because it's very good for anxiety and depression, very good for addiction. One kind of area that I, spe- that I specialize in is autoimmunity and Lyme disease and chronic illness. So this is a kind of slightly adapted approach with Campbell where we're working with people who have really fragile health and I'm seeing really amazing results there. So these are people that have been told by their doctors that, you know, Basically, they don't exactly know what's happening with them, but um, here's some medication and hope for the best. And most times these people, again, have a history of trauma. They have a history of something that happened in their life that, that caused that change in their body. It's always connected. So it, it seems to really help with those things. You know, it, it works in a mysterious way, but it seems to know what each person needs because... I've had so many, I mean, at the moment on my books, there's like over, I think it's about 240 clients, which is a lot. And, you know, almost everyone has like a story like this to, to tell. But saying that it's not for everyone and it can be, you know, sometimes it can be too much. Um, but that's why the training, well, the the practitioner is really important because you have a big responsibility serving this to someone you could potentially make them worse. So you have to really understand the pathophysiology and, you know, medical history and the stuff they're taking, how it's affected them. But I'm, I just love all this stuff. I've always been a bit of a nerd. So this is this is a nice combination of both worlds. There is some discussion around people in the West taking kind of indigenous treatments and therapies and adapting them and and how does that impact those communities and and all that sort of stuff and I know that you do a lot of work with indigenous people so I was wondering how you make sure that your practice is sustainable and ethical in regards to that yeah this is a great really important question to me this is absolutely the number one priority so anyone that's in any way benefiting from indigenous medicine or knowledge they should absolutely take care of the reciprocity of what they're doing and that is not the case <laughs> in in many ways you know um so for, for me I'm, I'm very lucky that I now I do what I do and I work very closely especially with the Hunyakuin people from the from the Brazilian Amazon but also with Yawanawa and the Matis and these 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 are all um people that work with Ayahuasca and they work with Cambo and yeah they're they're i think if there's reciprocity then great you know it's 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 good to to cooperate and and support each other they're sharing this knowledge with us so we have to make sure we give something back you know the we need to look after them and and the environment because if we apply our capitalist model to something like this there will be no more frogs. There will be no more medicines to pick in a forest if we just take, take, take. You don't call yourself a, sh- a shaman, do you, or shaman? No, 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 
the word shaman comes from the sort of um, Mongolian, Siberian ancient traditions. So, so that kind of practitioner works in a certain way with the spirit, and they say it was chosen by the spirit. Um, and usually, facilitator or um, uh, a wise person, a healer from from other traditions, they usually have a different name. So in 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 South America, it could be curandero, curandera, or page. In, in with the people I work with, uh, and I think those terms should always be left to indigenous people. Um, yeah, when you see some some guy, a burning man, wearing some mad silvery headdress and calls himself so himself a shaman, you know that's something's wrong but it happens all the time i think maybe th- those terms are uh, should be left to to those that come from that ancestral tradition the theme of of the podcast is about kind of healing and creativity so i was wondering how you did mention that you were thinking about kind of the balance has sort of almost swung more this way at the moment uh, and you don't have as much time to make music but I was wondering how you know this kind of process of healing um for you how that's kind of impacted your creative practice I'm still doing a lot I just maybe I'm doing way less than I used to because I used to just be a workaholic when it comes to music and stuff so I'm, I'm still doing enough but the big change came for me I guess when I first started working with medicine, first of all, it helped to open my voice again. So I used to I used to sing a lot when I was younger, and then a lot of stuff happened that I just prevented me from singing and uh, just gave me massive anxiety around being around people, being on stage, stuff like that. It was it was really difficult, and then yeah, it happened maybe. In a, in a couple of ceremonies that I worked with, it really helped to open my voice. And then, you know, I put a record on Fool's Gold that I was singing on. And then I, all the artwork and everything in my production since this moment is kind of heavily influenced by all things rainforest or magical. So it's a little bit of a theme in all my releases now. But that was like a good example of something that happened and it helped me get rid of the the fear and I didn't really care what people thought of me anymore that was gone you know I was I was so tortured by this and imposter syndrome and fucking Twitter and Instagram and and none of it mattered anymore so and that gave me a lot of freedom to make whatever music I wanted to make I mean I certainly have known uh lots of people who've been kind of reluctant almost to like let go of their pain or to like stop doing so many drugs because they sort of feel like that darkness almost is associated with their creativity and there's almost like a fear of getting well because that trope that we have where if you're happy you can't make good art and it's like so damaging it's so damaging definitely that was the same with me and I think as I realized what a myth it was you know, and this kind of glamorizing of like tortured artists or have hasn't had sleep for two days or I mean, it's it's just all bullshit. <laughs> I, I definitely agree that obviously music is an amazing vehicle for any emotion. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I feel like I'm making better music now. And, you know, I still drink a little bit, way, way, way less. But sometimes I'll drink and, and I can 
easily do gigs now sober. And how do you kind of balance those two aspects of yourself, being a DJ producer and then also doing this something that's completely different? Because I sometimes feel like there is this need to kind of be like defined in one lane sometimes and if you have other aspects it's like oh don't confuse people (laughs) do you know what I mean like that sort of singleness of focus and if you do anything else then it's like maybe you're not like die hard enough about the music or I don't know sometimes there's there's can be like a kind of a tug between those two things they're very different you know to the outsider anyway perhaps they aren't so much when you're inside them but I think the outside perception is that they're very different worlds. Yeah, you just, you made so many good points there. But I guess I, I, I still maybe a little bit battle with this. Sometimes I really think, how how am I going to, how does this work together? But And, and it just, it does seem to work in the end. Um, and sometimes I worry um, exactly what you said. Oh, maybe I'm not, you know, I'm not doing enough. Blah, blah, blah. And again, and I realize this is just a voice in my head. This is not real. So it's just a little hurdle a little kind of permission slip that I've given myself to ruminate and this is another OCD trait you know is this like what if what if oh maybe this or maybe oh I better do, you know all this I could go for hours of this and now I'm managing to to just cut this out but it's it's not easy and and sometimes it's it's difficult to go to an environment where there's a lot of drugs or you know there's sometimes there's negative energy in clubs it's not always amazing and I really feel yeah sometimes it's a bit challenging like that but most times it's I mean if you're playing music you know that as a DJ if you're playing music for other people you are in, in in a weird way a little bit of a shaman because you're providing that and that experience and that shared space and it is like a ceremony in a way and that's kind of our way of connecting so it's what indigenous people have been doing for thousands of years um and yeah you know they they have their ways to raise consciousness and we have ours here and so maybe in some way they're not such different worlds That was honestly such an interesting conversation. I've thought about it loads since we had it. And uh, yeah, I think I am going to go for some Cambo. I've read like a lot around it now, aside from this conversation. And I think it sounds so incredible. So I'll be giving that a go. I'll report back and let you know how it goes. But yeah, many, many thanks to Nightwave for joining me. I hope you enjoyed it. Would love to hear your thoughts. If you're interested in kind of joining the conversation, sharing your thoughts and opinions and experiences with me I always really enjoy hearing from you and you can uh, find me either my personal Instagram which is at Millie underscore on air underscore or the podcast is at back to life pod if you enjoyed the episode and you're enjoying the series then please do leave us a review on Apple podcasts or Spotify that really does make a difference We also have another way to support the podcast and that is I have a coffee link in the bio and in the description of this podcast. So if you feel like you'd like to hear more of these then and and have like a couple of quid that you can chuck our way, it's all adds up and it's all gratefully received. So yeah, we're launching a, a back to life night at the end of January, January the 28th, the Love Inn in Bristol. 
And I really hope some of you who've enjoyed the podcast are going to come because it's going to be epic. I really can't wait. Some of my favourite DJs and people are going to be playing. Only good humans allowed. Only properly good humans allowed. The lineup, um, I'm not sure if we've announced it yet at the time of recording this. So do check the Instagram page for that. And I want to say the biggest thank you and big ups to George Powell, who edits all these episodes and takes care of the social media assets and thank you to double o who composed the music and georgie vivandier who made the original logo design and thank you so much to you for listening see you in two weeks <laughs>